Thank you, Lord Jesus, for today and the time that we get to spend together as a church family. We thank you for the ability to come openly and worship your great and holy name. We thank you for your holy scriptures. From Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation 22, we see your amazing story of redemption. As we finish up the first book of Psalms, we take a moment to thank you for the sanctifying work that this book has done for our church family. May we also be reminded of your good nature and that we are here to worship you. May we always be reminded and take comfort that you are our stronghold and our salvation comes from you alone. We confess, Lord, that it is easy for us to acknowledge you as Savior, but our sinful flesh tries to take control in other areas of our lives. We see horrible acts of sin and the effects of sinful brokenness that affect all of the world, and our fleshly emotions try to take control and convince us that unrighteous judgment should occur. Help us, Lord Jesus, to submit in all things to you and to take comfort that you will advocate to the Father on behalf of your people. Help us to see the goodness that comes not just from your perfect and holy judgment, but also the timing of your judgment. We thank you, Father, for all of the churches meeting today to proclaim your great and holy name. With each church having its slight differences in liturgy, we thank you for keeping us all united in our primary mission of working together to spread your gospel each and every week. We pray specifically for Selwood Church and Pastor Jeff in Portland. May you use this church and its elders to teach the Portland area what true love looks like. We pray similarly for the branch and Pastor Doug as he gets ready to preach about your amazing work of redemption that was completed on the day of Calvary. In all of the churches that we partner with, whether it be formally or informally, we pray that you would use us to further your kingdom today. I thank you, Jesus, for this local gathering of uh, body here at Mission Fellowship. We pray collectively this morning for the deacons of this church. We pray that you would sustain them as they practically serve the needs of our body. May they do so with joy and happiness, knowing that they do these services for you. Finally, Lord, I thank you for my brother Ryan and the time that he spent preparing for the teaching today. May the hearts and ears of your church be opened hearing your word today as we grow in our sanctification and understanding of your amazing love. We pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat and open your Bibles to Psalm 37. Like Michael said, this will be our last Sunday for now, reading the Psalms, studying the Psalms, and we'll move on next, next week to a, a uh, roughly seven-part series on discipleship. But for now, we'll consider Psalm 37. In 1977, singer and songwriter Robert Marley released a song called Three Little Birds, where the chorus exhorted the listeners to not worry about anything. Uh, the reason to not worry is because, well, everything's going to be all right. Eleven years later, another sing singer-songwriter named Robert McFerrin sang something similar. He said, don't worry, be happy. Now that I have those songs stuck in your head, number one, you're welcome. <laughs> and number two, I have questions for the Roberts. I want to ask them. On what basis can you tell me not to worry? What assurance can you give me that everything is going to be all right? Is it even possible to not worry? Neither of these songs gives any real concrete reason for not worrying. They don't give me any instructions on what to do with my worry. I'm just holding it and pretending it's not there. Thousands of years ago, another singer, songwriter, wrote a song about not worrying. 
King David is the author of Psalm 37, which we'll be looking at today. He too is keen to get us to not worry, but he gives us a reason to not worry. We won't just be letting go of worry, we'll be putting it away because of God's revealed truth and character. The title of the sermon is, Do Not Fret the Evildoers, Take Refuge in the Lord. The English word used over and over in the psalm is fret. If you aren't familiar with it, it is similar to worrying. And Psalm 37 reads like a proverb. It's a wisdom psalm. In it, the author is speaking to man, not to God, like we've seen in some of the other psalms. It's a wisdom psalm, but it can also be considered a psalm of confidence. It's not simply passing along wisdom like a tutor speaking to a student. The psalmist has a goal of worship for the hearer. The psalmist wants the listener to know that their future is secure in the Lord and any apparent success of the wicked is temporary. The framework of it is an acrostic. Roughly each couplet of verses in our English translation starts with a new letter of the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. It's a collection of proverbial statements in alphabetical order. This framework allows the author to begin considering a topic, setting it aside, and then coming back to it later. Other psalms we've looked at have a progression of thought, the authors starting in despair and moving themselves into worship. Or maybe it has a chiastic structure, where it starts in one place, rolls out to a main point, and then rolls back to its starting place. But Psalm 37 bounces around from one idea to the next, delighting in God and his good ways, then returning and delighting to those same ideas in a new way. So let's look at the psalm now and read aloud together. We'll read verses 1 through 11 together. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. From this passage, we have our first point. Have confidence in God's character. The section we just read is in what's called the imperative mood. Maybe you've heard of that before. The imperative mood is a fancy way of saying commands. Look at the page with me. Look at these examples. Verse 1, fret not. Be not envious. Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. 
dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself, commit your way, trust in him. Verse 7, be still, wait patiently, fret not. These are instructions. They're authoritative commands. They're given with the expectation that we follow them. They're not suggestions. They're not a life hack. They aren't 10 weird tricks to reduce wrinkles and keep your blood pressure down. They are commands. They're here for the sake of aligning your heart with the God of the universe. The confidence of the author and the reader comes from God's character, not the wisdom of the author. Let's look at these verses in that light. First, in verses 1 and 2, fret not and do not be envious of evildoers because their apparent success is temporary. Linger on the imagery here. The evildoer, the wrongdoer, will fade like grass fades. When it's spring, the grass looks pretty good, doesn't it? But if you go out of town or you forget to water for on one hot day, it's dead. It fades. So it is with the evildoer. The one opposed to God has no source to draw from. They cannot be sustained with nothing to draw from. And verse 2 says they will wither like the green herb. They're frail. Their success is tenuous and quick to wither up. For a brief moment, like grass in spring or a delicate herb, the evildoers appear to be winning. But the psalmist reminds us that this is short-lived and it will come to an end. God will not allow the wrongdoer to endure. It's against his character. The next imperative is to trust in the Lord and do good. To trust in him is to base your words and your thoughts and your actions in his revealed character and promises. Promises known in the Bible as covenants. To do good is to obey those imperatives, his commands. This last part of verse 3 says to dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In this psalm, we'll see David leaning hard on the Mosaic covenant, that is, the covenant that God made with his people through Moses. The covenant is expansive, but we can see a summary here. Look on the screen at Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 16. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. To be blessed in the land meant all kinds of peace and prosperity. There were many blessings that came with national covenant obedience and curses that came with disobedience. The blessings included safe dwelling in the land with food security, and the curses brought the opposite. So when the psalmist says, trust in the Lord, he's referring to a specific promise that God made to care for his people. When he says to do good, good is defined by God, the covenant lawmaker and giver. So they should trust him and follow his ways because they know God will take care of them. Next, they are to befriend faithfulness. Faithfulness is pictured as a companion. It's so present in your life. It's a favorited contact on your phone. It's a pinned text conversation. You interact with it so much. 
This is, can also be translated feed on faithfulness. More imagery to give us the idea that faithfulness is something to be nourished by. Another translation is cultivate faithfulness. Faithfulness should be cultivated in your life like a crop. The soil is prepared, the seeds are planted and watered and fertilized. Befriend faithfulness can be translated find safe pasture. It's an extension of dwelling in the land to living in safety and God's provision. Now, Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. There's nothing like preaching a passage with a life verse to step on people's toes. But I want you to know that I'm wearing open-toed sandals. My toes are exposed as well. I can confess, I've pulled this verse out of the context of the whole psalm and made it about my own goals for my own life. This verse has been used by who knows how many generations to teach and believe that you can get God to do what you want by sending him kind words and religious actions. There's nothing more pagan than to believe that God is just someone powerful to call on to get what you want. When you make yourself the center of Psalm 37.4, you twist it into a tool for your own selfishness. And when you do that, you put yourself back in verses one and two. You become the wrongdoer because you are really delighting in yourself and your own desires. We should put this idea far out of our minds and our hearts. Get rid of the idea that good deeds can manipulate God into giving us our desired outcomes. Now, another way of looking at this is that if you delight in God, then he will give you the actual desires. He will place the desires in your heart that align with his desires, and thus their fulfillment is sure. Now, I think this is true. This is the expected process and outcome of our growth in godliness. We start wanting more and more of what he wants. Our desires get actually changed and more conformed to his desires. I think this is a true, true way of looking at this, but it still reads Psalm 37.4 in isolation. It pulls the context out of the passage. There's a specific desire that's in mind here. It's not, you get the desires of your heart, and you get the desires of your heart, and you get the desires of your heart, even if they are good desires from God. The desire of the heart of the reader of Psalm 37.4 is to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness without the wrongdoer's interference. The desire of the heart of the reader of Psalm 37.4 is to dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness without the wrongdoer's interference. And that's what's being granted here. Their heart desires for God's character to be on display by casting evildoers out of the land. The entire motivation of this psalm is to call the reader to patience, to know that God will act to put the wicked to an end. The psalmist presumes that the desire of the reader is for God to act on his behalf. So all the believer needs to do is delight in the Lord. So if you have Psalm 37.4 on a cross stitch or a needle point on a pillow or a magnet on your fridge or wherever else, that's fine. I don't think you need to get rid of it. This is a worthy verse to have memorized and to meditate on. All of God's word should be treasured and permeate our lives. 
But don't let a wrong understanding twist the meaning of the verse. We should delight in the Lord and watch for him to act in accordance with his character. Further proof that we should read Psalm 37.4 in this way is verse 5. It says essentially the same thing but a different way. Now the reader is commanded to commit their way to the Lord, trust in him, and he will act. Not only will he act, but he will vindicate the one who has committed themselves to his way. Moving forward, verse 7, the command becomes, be still before the Lord and wait for him. Why should you wait? Why should you be still? Because you know that God will act. You know that God will not allow the wicked to persist. We are told here another time not to fret because the way we respond to the temporary success of the evildoer shows our theology. It shows what we believe about God. Do you believe he will act? When we worry, when we fret, it shows that we don't believe that God is going to make all things right. The psalmist is very interested in what we believe. He wants us to have the utmost confidence that God will act and that we not be pulled into worry or fear or worse, that we would be pulled into evil because God is being patient. God is giving chances for the wicked to turn from their ways and follow him just as the righteous. But if they don't turn to him, they will be cut off. But those who wait for God will endure. As we've seen throughout the Psalms, waiting is not a passive exercise. It's an active, confident trust in God. It means crying out to God when you can't make sense of life. Because you know that he hears you. You know that he sees everything. Being still and waiting means retraining your thoughts and emotions to come into conformity with God's character. Verse 8 expands on this says that when you act, especially in anger or wrath, taking vengeance into your own hands, you join the evildoers. In Deuteronomy 32, God says, vengeance is mine. Not only is vengeance God's responsibility, it's his right, and it's his way. The reason to not fret, as Psalm 37.9 says, the evildoers will be cut off. The great hope of the Old Testament Israelite is that they will inherit the land. The way of the righteous is to always watch for what God is doing because he will act according to his promise and his character. Our first section from this text ends in verses 10 and 11, and it's reassurance that the wicked will not remain, but the meek will inherit the land. I've mentioned the land several times already. Psalm 37 mentions the land six times. So much of the Old Testament and that Mosaic covenant is focused on the land of Israel, and that can feel a little distant to us living thousands of years later and 7,000 air miles from Jerusalem. So what do we do with this promise that the meek shall inherit the land? As you might be anticipating already, Jesus is this bridge for us between the old and the new covenants. Verse 11 should sound familiar. For Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus takes this promise from Psalm 37 and shows us the trajectory of redemptive history. The land promise and security in the land 
is about God providing a place for his people to live. And through those people, he would provide as the savior of the whole world. The old covenant had its focus on the land for the sake of the whole world. It had a focus on a specific group of people for the sake of all people who would believe in his son. So going from inheriting the land to inheriting the whole earth is not a shift. It's not a change in God's approach. It's the revealing, it's the uncovering of what was there the whole time. So despite all the time and air miles between us and the original readers of this psalm, we have a ton in common with them. They lived in an in-between time. They were in between God's promise that they would live in abundant peace and actually living in abundant peace. Most of the time that Psalm 37 was read between David and Jesus, the Israelites were facing trouble of some kind. We too live in an in-between time. Between the time of God's promise that the meek will inherit the earth and actually inheriting the earth. We live in between Jesus' enthronement as king and him finally putting an end to all of his enemies. He's still in the process of putting all of his enemies under his feet. So we too must wait and be still and not fret when we see the temporary and apparent success of the wicked. God, in keeping with his character, will put the wicked under his rule and they will no longer disturb those who follow God. So we can ask ourselves a few questions about this first section. Does the evil and chaos in the world cause you to fret? It's a great time to examine. It reveals, this question reveals what you really believe about God's action, both now and in eternity. Additionally, how can you cultivate faithfulness in your life? What practices do you need to have in place to help you endure, to help you not fret when you see the apparent temporary success of the wicked? Our text now moves into a description of the behavior of the wicked. So far, the psalmist is using terms like evildoer and wrongdoer and the wicked, but now we'll see a description of what he has in mind when he uses these terms. So let's read out loud again together. Verses 12 through 22. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish the enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land. But those cursed by him shall be cut off. 
Here we draw our second point of the psalm. The wicked are brought to their end by God. The first behavior of the wicked to notice is that they plot against the righteous, even gnashing their teeth at them because of their hatred. To be spiritually attuned is to see that there is nothing neutral in this world. Neutrality is an illusion. When you commit your way to God, when you put your trust in him, you make yourself an enemy to the wicked. This is why we're so careful about who we surround ourselves with. This is why we're so careful about whose voice we listen to. Everything that your eyes and ears consume is evangelizing you to some cause. The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will use any means necessary to keep you from God. But we don't fear, we don't fret, because the Lord laughs at the futile plots of his enemies. He knows their day of judgment is coming. So we wait and we watch to make sure that we're not entangled by the plots. We delight in the Lord and we commit our thoughts, words, and actions to him and we are protected by him. Verse 14 explains further that the the wicked will resort to violence. They're willing to use the sword and the bow to bring down the vulnerable and the upright. But the very violence that they use will be sent back on their own heads. Now, maybe this is what Jesus had in mind when he said, all who take the sword will perish by the sword. He said those words, staring violence right in the face on the night of his arrest. There he was, knowing the death that he was about to die. And he trusts his father so much, he's willing to wait to be still before God knowing that the plots of the wicked would not succeed, knowing that the violence of the wicked would be brought on their own heads. When the Son of God came to earth and became man, the enemy poured out all, or pulled, out, pulled out all the stops. The evildoers plotted. They gnashed their teeth at the Messiah. The wicked drew their sword, thinking that their greatest hope was to use violence, to use death, They thought they could put an end to God's plans and his ways. They could not have imagined that by killing the Son of God, they ensured their own destruction. When the enemy used death against Jesus, the very tool used was destroyed. The death of the Son of God is what secured our eternal life. While Jesus' body lay in the tomb, to all appearances, it looked like the wicked had won. It looked like the plotting worked. I wonder if any of Jesus' followers read this psalm that weekend. I wonder if any of them drew any hope from these faithful words. Because just as this psalm is saying to us today, the supposed and apparent success of the wicked was temporary. Because when Jesus emerged from the tomb, resurrected by the Father, he put the enemy's sword right through their own heart. He broke their bow making these tools worthless against the upright. The tools of the enemy are no longer to be feared. Death has no power over Jesus, and it has no power over anyone who is in him. Next, we see a few ways that the righteous and the wicked use or abuse money and material goods. 
Look at verse 16. It's framed like a proverb. It's better to have little but to be part of the righteous than to have abundance in the company of, the, of wickedness. This is because for the wicked, the abundance of this life is all that they will ever know. And that abundance will fly away, it will fade, and it will vanish. But the righteous have not stored up their treasure here where moth and rust destroy. Their reward is yet to come. The righteous have only begun to have a taste of what God has in store for them. This is why the little of the righteous is better than the abundance of the wicked. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, while the righteous is generous and gives. This continues the thought that the way of the wicked is to have their mind set on this life and gathering all that they can here. Their focus is on their own appetites. Their own desires are the gravity of their life. Seeing themselves as the source, they are cut off. But the righteous gives. They see their, their resources rightly as coming from and belonging to God. They don't give because they think it's a good deed in order to please God to get him on their side, but because their life is rooted in the deep generosity of the Father who gives them what they need. So how do you view your resources? Are your desires like a black hole, the gravity pulling all of your time, talent, and treasure in on yourself? Are you storing up treasure in heaven or enjoying all you can here? Are you a conduit of generosity, seeing all you have as belonging to the Lord in order to build his kingdom? The psalm couldn't be clearer about who will find everlasting life and who will pass away. As we move to the next section, the psalmist considers the way of the righteous and the Lord's dealings with them while the wicked appear to have success. Let's read our next section out loud again together. Verses 23 through 33. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Here we gather the next point of the text. The righteous are preserved by God. So when the wicked seem to be winning, when they are plotting against the Lord's people, God preserves them. Those who delight in the way of the Lord are kept safe. 
Even when they fall, they are not destroyed, because it is the Lord who sustains them. Many of you are facing tough times. Maybe the toughest times that you're going to face in your life. But our psalm today is telling you in no uncertain terms, keep delighting in the Lord. He is the one who sustains you and will hold you up. The psalmist turns to his personal experience, his long life, and he says he's never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He highlights again that the righteous are a source of generosity. They're a conduit for good. It's tempting in our modern minds to read this passage woodenly, to take it literally, that if you're righteous, you'll never lack anything. If you lack something, you must not be righteous. This is not a good way to read ancient wisdom literature. It is motivational, theological wisdom. It's wisdom with a purpose. So we have to keep that purpose in mind, which, which here is to encourage God's people to remain faithful, even when it appears that the wicked are winning. Now, it's very possible that David could mean this literally, that God's people had always had food security during his lifetime. But I think he's still leaning on God's covenant promise of security in the land when he says this. Psalm 37 endured through many generations of Israelites who lived in exile. The nation was exiled because they broke the covenant, but there were always faithful Jews who longed for God even in exile. So I imagine they read this psalm with particular interest. They needed reminders that God would not forsake them. The psalm endured through the first century when the church in Jerusalem was going through a famine. The apostles took up a collection for that church as they went on their missionary journeys. So the church in Jerusalem had need. They needed bread. They, couldn't, they didn't have anything to lend. So we miss the point if we read this too woodenly. The point is to not fret about the wicked and look to God for your provision. And there is an eternal provision that this psalm is moving toward. Like Kelton said last week, Jesus knew the psalms and the psalms knew Jesus. It's no coincidence that, God, or that Jesus spoke of himself as the bread of life. Look on the screen, John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Does that sound similar at all to our text here today? When you are sustained by living water that never runs dry, then you can say with David, I've never seen God's people begging for anything. Maybe it's because of the generosity of others to share with them. Maybe it's pure contentment with what God has provided physically. But God's people have been given Christ, and we need to challenge ourselves if we don't think that's enough. The old covenant was framed around the land, and food security for the nation was a sign of the nation's good standing with God. Just as the land promise was expanded to fill the whole earth, this food security sign has found its source in the Son of God. One of the signs of the new covenant is the Lord's Supper. The food that we eat is the sign that we are in covenant with God, just like the land and food promises were a sign of Israel's covenant with God. Taking the supper is not primarily about a personal experience with God. It's not magic that brings you forgiveness. 
It's a sign that you are part of the covenant people of God. That's why we say what we do before the Lord's Supper about being a member of the visible church. How do you know you're part of the invisible church if you're not part of a visible church? 2,000 years ago, the sign of God's covenant faithfulness to us was to give his son as a redemptive sacrifice for our sins. And so, for 2,000 years, the sign of the new covenant with God is that we take the bread that represents his body and drink the juice, or in some churches, wine, that represents his blood. By participating in this covenant, not just by doing the sign, but by participation in the covenant, Jesus promises later in John 6 that he will raise us up on the last day. The momentum of this whole psalm is moving us to not worry or get caught up in temporary things, but to, re- to view reality with an eternal perspective. Let's look at the final section of the psalm, reading aloud together verses 34 through 40. Wait for the Lord and keep his way and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace." but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. And so here we have our final point, the eternal perspective. This final section shifts our perspective from the practical outworking of the evildoer and the righteous to their final destination. From our earthly perspective, the wicked and the ruthless may appear to be winning. They have spread themselves around the world, across every industry and every area of life. But God sees their end. He sees that they will pass away. They will not be found. They will have no future. We have his divine assurance of it. But you can mark the upright. You can look for them. You can watch them. There is a future for them. This is why we don't have to worry or fret when we see the temporary and apparent success of the wicked. You can confidently wait and trust because your salvation is from the Lord. He is your stronghold in times of trouble. The Lord helps you and he delivers you when you take refuge in him. You are not saved by an inner goodness or by accumulating good works to put God in your debt. You are saved by trusting in God as your refuge. If this is a new idea to you, or if you want to know more about what it means to take refuge in the Lord, or to be part of this new covenant that is made through Christ, please come talk to one of the pastors after the service. We would love to tell you more about what it means to find salvation in him. This final section serves as a bookend to the psalm with the first section. Remember, the evildoer and the wrongdoer have no source. They fade like grass. 
They wither like delicate herbs. But the images we're given here for the believer are salvation and stronghold and deliverance and refuge. This is not a vague hope. This is the sure, faithful promise of the Lord who has proven himself over and over again in all the toughest times. We need an eternal perspective because we are prone to measuring success or God's activity with our eyes on temporary things. We see the abundance of the wicked. We see how the wicked people have power in this world. We see how they use tools of violence and greed, and we're tempted to pick up those same tools for our own interests. So we need this reminder regularly that God will make all things right. He will uphold and sustain those who are in Christ and bring his enemies to destruction. We need an eternal perspective because deliverance may not come in this life. Each of us will face difficulties on this side of eternity that we have to bear under our whole lives. Deliverance from the eternal perspective is not a removal of difficulties. It's to endure through them and to find relief the same way our Savior did. He waited. He trusted. He delighted. He committed his life to God. And God vindicated him by not leaving him in the grave. And that's why we can hear this psalmist and not worry. Because God has proven his character to be true and faithful. He will not forsake his people. And part of making all things right is to cut off the future of the wicked. We can have confidence because God has said that he will deliver those who look to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us today. Thank you for your true and good command that we not fret because of the evil that we see in the world. Help us to trust you, to be patient as we wait for your return. Help us to delight in you so that we will be sustained by you. We pray all these things in accordance with your will. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.